Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Max Verstappen is the first driver in F1 history to win 10 races in a row after dispatching Ferrari's Carlos Sainz in Monza. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 14, the Italian Grand Prix. An excellent Carlos Sainz had taken pole, and a great start and superb defensive work meant Verstappen couldn't find a way into the lead. But hope for home fans lasted just 14 laps. Verstappen had pressured Sainz into cooking his tyres, a lockup on lap 15 opened the door, and Verstappen was through. The race was won. It was entertaining while it lasted, and there were plenty of scraps through the field, including for a spot on the podium, to make the Italian Grand Prix memorable for more than just a new record. But was there any way for Ferrari to have spoiled the party? To answer that question, I'm joined by Brazilian F1 journalist and host of the Pit Pass F1 podcast, Julianne Serasoli. Julianne, how are you going? Doing very well, yes. After a weekend in the sun in Italy, at last, we had so much <laughs> rain this throughout the whole season that we're all very happy to finish the European season with the sun and with a big party for Ferrari. Of course, they didn't win, but... <laughs> Well, at least it, the most impressive thing was that Carlos managed to stay for 14 laps in front of Max Verstappen and nobody has done that this season, <laughs> fighting for the lead, which is absolutely incredible. So he has to do another, you know, we add that up, another 14 laps next year, 14 <laughs> after that, maybe in four or five years, someone else will win a race. So we've always got that to look forward to. Uh, look, let's get this out of the way quickly, I suppose, uh, because, you know, Max Verstappen's race was relatively straightforward, but the history is the bigger part of his Grand Prix. Tenth win in a row, first driver to ever to do that. It's a pretty big deal. Uh, unless you're Mercedes, I suppose, in which case you're Toto Wolff saying it's not a big deal at all. Good for Wikipedia, he says, which is a very specific thing to say <laughs> also. Have we made too much about this? Is, is is there any kernel of truth to what Toto Wolff is saying in that records like this don't really matter? Uh, I felt it was a bit sour from, from Toto. We all know how hard it is for the same team to win uh, ten, 10 races in a row and it, it, it speaks volumes about the team. So they're, they're good. They're very good with their tyres, so that helps a lot on every Sunday. But the whole operation of the team is good, no mistakes. When they did make a mistake, so in, in the Dutch Grand Prix, when they put Max on the, the wet, and then they got lucky with the, the red flag. But <laughs> when it does happen, something else help, helps them because they are helping themselves as well. But also the reliability of their car is amazing. And Yes, it is a big thing. That's why it doesn't happen very often. Very often, That's why I felt Toto was a bit sour in his comments. It is a, it was a bit strange. I found it a little bit unbecoming, certainly, and also somewhat unlike Toto. You know, we're not unused to Lewis Hamilton occasionally refusing to say Max Verstappen's name, for example, but for Toto Wolff, I thought, I thought that was a little bit interesting. But 
He did say if they do get to the end of the year undefeated, then he'll congratulate them. So the bar's <laughs> pretty low for that one, yeah. for Toto Wolf's affection. I wanted to check Toto Wolf's Wikipedia after that one. He was the first <laughs> thing he wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, haven't, I hadn't thought to check it. Maybe it should. Maybe he's telling us. Maybe there's a joke there or something. You'll probably only understand it if you're Austrian, but maybe it's there to be enjoyed for anyone who wants to check. Uh, the way Max Verstappen did win his 10th successive Grand Prix, started from second on the grid behind, behind Carlos Sainz, couldn't get him off the line. At first on team radio, he sounded pretty confident, as confident as I think everyone else was that he was going to eventually win this race. A few more laps later, he sounded a little bit more agitated about that straight line speed. But as you said, by uh, lap start of lap 15, as it was, broke past Carlos Sainz's defences, Sainz locked up, he got the better line, the deal was done. Was there ever really any doubt that Max Verstappen was going to get ahead of Carlos Sainz at this race? And if Red Bull can't be defeated here, which seems like their weakest race of the season so far, is there any hope for any other track? <laughs> well, first with, with Max, uh, I think he he's not used anymore to be behind another car for so many laps. <laughs> but also Max is like that. He wants to finish things. So maybe he was told before the race, okay, just stay there. They are quick on the straights. There's no point and your DRS is not going to work the way it does for most of the season because of the skinny wings in, in Monza. So play the patient game and their tires are going to be destroyed. But it took a, a little bit of a while for uh, Carlos' tires to be worn out. It was actually a very good race from Carlos. What happens in that lockup is that the rears were starting to slide, so he moves the brake bias forward and by moving it forward then he locks the front tires but it was a mistake when the tires the the tread was really down to near nearly zero when he removed those tires so he was doing an amazing job with those tires but so it was a combination of okay those tires should be done right by now and I'm, i cannot find my way past and max was like okay we have to try something different but then eventually it did happen. So it, it was a mixture of Max just being a little bit impatient and Carlos driving a very good race. And for your second question, well, they don't like bumpy circuits. Singapore on paper should be good for them, but they don't like the bumpiness of it. So let's see. Let's see what happens. I'm sure a certain Fernando Alonso has been looking forward for the Singapore <laughs> Grand Prix for a while now. It's a good point. We shouldn't forget Monaco was also quite a close one. The extremes of the calendar, perhaps, are the way to look at it. And I guess we'll, we don't know how Las Vegas is going to go, but that looks relatively high speed as well, I think. Maybe not Monza levels, but something, well, an interesting, perhaps, twist in the way this season goes. Ferrari got that pole position uh, very well received by the home <laughs> fans, obviously. Great pole position for Carlos Sainz as well. The team really threw everything at trying to perform well at home. They, of course, brought Monza spec aerodynamics and their rear wing was very thin. Uh, brand new engines as well for both drivers. That counts for a lot at a power circuit. Race was obviously less impressive than qualifying, but still better than the season average. Why does the car suit this track so well, I guess, other than the food being better in Italy? 
of course, that, that feeds the car really well, of course. <laughs> but yeah, they, they have the, this problem when they put down force in the car, the car starts to make this vertical movement that they cannot control. So that upsets, of course, the, the height and of, uh, upsets the floor, the way that the air is fed through the, the car. So that's why, for example, they had a lot of problems in the Dutch Grand Prix. They couldn't even use the bigger wing they had because then the car would be uncontrollable. When they release this downforce from the car, the car gets lighter and then it gets quieter so to speak. So the movement is less frequent, it's more under control. So they can balance the car much better. So they like this kind of tracks. So that's why as well, that's why they are changing the car completely for next year. Because this has to do with, not only with the aerodynamics, but it has to do with the gearbox as well. So they have to change a lot of things in the car in order to control this movement, which is naturally controlled when they remove downforce from the car. It's almost like it's meant to be, isn't it? I mean, Ferrari is one of the more successful teams in Italy anyway, <laughs> so it may as well be uh, one of its better circuits over the course of this relatively disappointing year for them. It's almost as if the car was made to do well in Monza, yeah. <laughs> or it was fought to do well in Monza, because of course a team can do that, but in order to win the championship, you have to be good over, overall. That's why they're changing the car for next year. It will be interesting to see how much the car does change and what it looks like, really. There's always a lot of, uh, of course, questions about how close new cars next year will look like the Red Bull racing car. That happens naturally anyway, I suppose, but it, it sounds like it's going to be a pretty significant change and whether or not that can catch them up before the end of the regulations is the question everyone wants to know. We will find out. Max Verstappen looks pretty unbeatable at this point in time. This was a one-stop strategy for most teams and drivers, we'll talk about some of the outliers a little bit later. Um, Ferrari is included here, despite them not being able to run a one-stop last year because tyre wear, as is the case this year, has been pretty rough for them. Are you surprised, though, considering they had Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc up the front in a battle with Max Verstappen, that they didn't try something a little bit different, whether that's a two-stop strategy or just something a little bit offset? For example, Carlos Sainz didn't go for the undercut after Max Verstappen passed him, even though, yes, it would have been relatively early in the race. Are you just surprised they didn't roll the dice a little bit more considering that they, you know, could only try something? It's a bit harder in Monza to do that because if you stop twice, it's 25 seconds of pit stop loss. So it's a lot of time to make up. And you cannot make up that much time in Monza because in Monza, it's not where tire wear is a thermal degradation and thermal de degradation, what happens is that the lap times, they don't go up, 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 up. The lap times stay reasonably um, balanced until there's a, a big tire drop and then there's no thread anymore. So given those two things combined, it's really hard to make a two-stop strategy work because you're not gonna make up 25 seconds. And I believe that's why they didn't try something different. And when uh, Sainz was overtaken, it was lap 15. Lap 15 was when Albon stopped and we saw how Albon struggled in the, the end of the race. Even Carlos, he said, okay, for me inside the car, it felt like a two-stop race because my tires were over five laps before I was supposed to stop both times or before the, the end of the race as well. But he, it, it was up to him to try to make it work there. There was no, nothing, I can't see a way that Ferrari could have won 
that race through strategy. The only thing that could have helped Ferrari would be a huge cloud cover. It would be if the track temperature was a bit more under control. If that was the case, then the thermal degradation would be lower and Ferrari could have a chance. But it was really sunny. It wasn't actually sunny, sunny, sunny. There was this thin clove, uh, uh, cloud cover, and, but not enough to make a shade. I don't know if <laughs> I can explain it really well. Very thin, thin cloud there, not enough to count as a shade, but track temps were really high, were above uh, 40 degrees, and the ambient temperature was really high, was the highest for the whole weekend. If that wasn't the case, if I don't know, if we had the Thursday weather on Sunday, maybe the history could have been a little bit different. Ferrari just needs to work on its cloud seeding program <laughs> or something for future years then. Make sure that you leave nothing to chance. It's the only way to do it. Just to wrap up on Ferrari's outcome here, they did get one car on the podium, Carlos Sainz, of course. Talk about Sergio Perez in a second. Julianne, your first Italian Grand Prix was 2011. Was that 12, 13 years ago? Ferrari's had a lot of disappointment in that time, <laughs> a lot of non-finishes and crashes. One win, Carl, uh, Charles Leclerc a couple of years ago. They came close to even losing the chance for a podium in this race, though. The drivers were allowed to, to, to fight each other right to the end with, as you were saying, so little rubber left on the tyres. Now, they didn't crash, which is great, and they gave us a great show. Also great. Are you surprised Ferrari management let them risk so much? I know they said no risk, but still, there seemed like there was quite a lot. Considering the stakes of racing at home in those final laps, not really anything to gain, but a lot to lose? Yeah, there's this history with Ferrari, with Villeneuve and Pironi, <laughs> when they, they were doing this show and it didn't end up really well for, for both of them, for their friendship and everything. <laughs> it really surprised me to see what was going on. And during the race, it sounded like Leclerc was just not listening to, to the team radio. And then after the race, there were some sour comments. I think it, it was from Carlos Sr., saying that it's a bit weird because sometimes they let them race and sometimes they don't. We've seen many times this season when Carlos is quicker than Charles and he's behind, he's told to stay there and he stays there. And then now Charles didn't do it. But then after the race, Charles was in very good spirit saying, oh, I had so much fun. It's, uh, it's amazing to have these duos with, with Carlos because he's so fair and we were just having fun. And Carlos said the same, we were just having fun. So it was all a bit confusing. <laughs> it was great to watch. I don't know, in the grandstands, maybe we had some heart attacks or something <laughs> like that. But in the end, you know, nobody, no front wings or tires were damaged and Ferrari came home with the, the third and fourth place. So in the end, it was a good show, but it was a bit weird. And what happens in, in the Ferrari manage, management is that sometimes they are free to race, sometimes they are not. It is all a bit confusing. We'll wait and see how the balance of the season goes out between them. But there's no doubt it was a great spectacle after the race had effectively been won by Max Verstappen. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Sergio Perez was second on what was, a, I think, a fairly strong day for him in the end. He had a long battle with George Russell, got past him, one-stop strategy like so many, and then got past both Ferrari drivers, I don't want to say too easily, but you know, in a way that sort of made you feel like it was going to be inevitable. How good a race for him do you think this was in the scheme of his season and considering you know, this weekend pretty much started in the barriers at Parabolica and then an engine change before qualifying? Is this sort of as good as we can expect from Sergio Perez? I think it was probably his best weekend since Baku. Yeah, I'm going to say that. Best weekend since Baku because, okay, let's forget about the, the Parabolica problem, <laughs> but set on Saturday. So this weekend had the alternate, uh, tire allocation, right? So they didn't do the quality runs with the soft tire on Friday. They did it, or most of them did it on uh, Saturday morning. When he was about to do that, he had an oil leak. So he lost the last 15 minutes of the session. So he didn't do his, what would be the Q3 um, qualifying attempt uh, during FP3. And then on top of that, he had the, the engine change. So he had to revert to an old engine in Monza. And during the race, so that meant that he was starting on fifth place because his qualifying preparation was not ideal. And then he has to, he had to overtake on the track uh, George Russell, Charles Leclerc, and Carlos Sainz. The three of them had fresh engines, even... Uh, George Russell had a French, fresh engine as well. So he, his work was not very easy. And also, when, he, when they were getting close to the pit stops, the Ferraris were still too close to Max so he could stop later. So they had to stop when Sainz entered on lap 19. They had to respond with uh, Max's stop. You would have been better for Paris race to try to undercut. But they couldn't. But he, they couldn't undercut at that point because they were uh, defending Max's lead. So he had to wait. He was the last one of the top four to do his stop. So he didn't have the chance to undercut, and he had to overtake on track cars with a stronger engine or with a fresher engine than his car. So I think it was a very, very solid race, a tough qualifying, but because he didn't have the 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 proper preparation for the, the qualifying. So I think it was a very uh, good and strong uh, weekend by Sergio Perez. Of course, when you say, oh, since back, it's been <laughs> such a long time. But yes, he's had a horrible part of the season and he's now recovering and we can see the signs of that. Yes, I think that's not an unfair call since Baku. I'm just sort of mentally thinking about it. And there have been there have been a lot of races since then, <laughs> but there have been a lot of disappointing races for Sergio Perez since then as well. Uh, just quickly before we move on as well, the alternative tyre allocation is something I, I found we, we didn't talk too much about over the course of the weekend. It sort of blended in relatively seamlessly, at least compared to Hungary, although it was newer there when we used it the first time. I, I'm interested in your opinion because it didn't seem like fears we weren't going to get a lot of practice running came to pass. It was maybe a little bit less than usual, but it wasn't as if everyone was hanging around their garages. And qualifying, while we didn't get any real shocking upsets, was 
as far as I can sort of think, relatively entertaining. What was your take on the second trial for this? Yeah, it's uh, a different track in Monza because in Monza they all know they are going to use two sets of tyres or some used three, but one of them was a, a used set anyway. So they didn't have to save as many tyres as they did in Hungary. And also they got more used to this thing, you know, the engineers in Brazil, in, in Brazil, the engineers in F1, they, uh, they learned quite quickly. So it was a little bit more straightforward, but what I do feel, I do think it's interesting that it's a lot harder for drivers, uh, qualifying because the qualifying, they have to deal with three different tires and sometimes they have a one feeling with one tire, a different feeling with another one. And they have to work harder and and that aspect i think is really good but uh, for free practices uh, it's not the same but who cares about free practice anyway <laughs> <laughs> only the engineers do <laughs> It's a fair call. Less practice is, I think, better off for everyone. Uh, we're interested to see, you know, how the tyre allocation evolves over time and how it affects running. But I certainly think there's something to be said for qualifying. It is a little bit difficult to compare the teams, I guess, when someone make it through to Q3 and you can't see what they've got. But I guess that's sort of the challenge. I think there's something in that. Uh, we didn't get too much tyre variation over the course of the race. One outlier in particular was Lewis Hamilton, though. He started on the opposite tyre, started on the hard, ran to lap 27 before switching on to the mediums. He dropped to 10th, but made pretty aggressive progress up there to 6th, where he finished just behind George Russell. Maybe too aggressive, I guess, because of the way he raced with Oscar Piastri, knocked his front wing off. A little bit of an uncharacteristic mistake for Lewis Hamilton. Does that just sort of talk about the fact he's still not fully comfortable with where this car is? And I guess combined with the fact this isn't an especially strong track for Mercedes? Yeah, specifically in that corner, uh, we've, we have seen this kind of incidents happening from time to time. There was an incident, I think uh, Lewis was... Uh, on the, where Oscar was and it was Charles Leclerc overtaking him and it was pretty much the same thing happening. We've seen that in, in F2, we've seen that uh, many times. So maybe it's, I think when the corner, it gets very narrow. So the, suddenly there's no space and then it's two big masses <laughs> going into a very small space and then these kind of things happen. But what happened with Lewis's race is that, in, especially in the beginning of the race, he was with um, a brake disc problem. He was controlling the temperatures. So I think that hindered his pro, uh, progress in the, the beginning of the race. I was a bit surprised, actually, because when you do this offset uh, tire strategy, what you hope for, he was starting outside of his position. Mercedes were the third fastest car in this weekend. So what, but at the same time, they didn't have a lot of straight line speed. So the, what they were trying to do, they were trying to believe in their pace, thinking, okay, we start here with the, the harder tire. Once the others stop, we can stay for a little bit longer. We can make up time with our, our own pace, uh, not being hindered by the other uh, drivers. But that didn't happen. As I said, after his first stop, he only had four or five laps more than the McLarens who he was racing with. He was behind Alonso. But then without the, the brake disc problems and with this tire offset, because the, the medium tire was much faster, 
he was able to compensate the lack of straight line speed and was able to get to where Mercedes had to be, which was in, in fifth and sixth position. So it was a, a good race from him, uh, apart from, from that scrub with, with Oscar. But in that corner, we've seen that happening. And what is frustrating was that in that example with Charles, there was no penalty. Now there was. So even the drivers don't know what's the limit there. Penalties are a whole other situation, whole other talking point, I think, in Formula 1, really. Quite a few penalties in this race. There are a handful of penalties, increasingly just those small ones, as if maybe everyone forgets about them because they're only five seconds. But it's another discussion, <laughs> I suppose. I want to talk briefly about Alex Albon before we move on to McLaren and, and wrap this up. Another strong race for him, really leaning on, I guess, what we all expected him to lean on, which is great straight line speed. Don't lose positions at the start and don't lose any in the pit stops and then just hold on for dear life, which is pretty much what he was doing. But there's also this question of, you know, I mean, he he had a pretty good race in the Netherlands last week, a completely different track. And yes, there were some sort of outlying reasons for that, but nonetheless was good enough that he could capitalise on those reasons. Is it time to stop thinking about the Williams car as one that can kind of occasionally have these great results in circumstances and actually probably a little bit better in the midfield than we all are kind of assuming or giving the team credit for? Yeah, there is a Williams before the Silverstone upgrade and after the Silverstone upgrade. Mm. There's something in that car that works really well in outcast situations when it's a bit cold, when it's a bit the track is a bit damp or intermediate tyre uh, situation. And we had that a lot that se- this season. In that kind of, when it's a little bit colder, they do really well, even when there's uh, high-speed corners. But they're still trying to understand. People ask me, so how can you explain what's happening with Williams? They don't know. So <laughs> who am I to try to explain this? But that he's, apparently has to do with the harder compound, a combination between the harder compounds and the colder conditions. And that that's what helped them in Silverstone. That's what helped them also in Hungary. But then we had the opposite here in, in Italy. We had a lot of heat and also um, the softer, softer tires. But then at that case, we had the uh, big straights that also helped Williams. So different things helped them in, in those two last weekends. But in, in Monza, they did what I think Alex is already used to, which is take him to the track with only old tires, <laughs> make him stop really early, and just trust that he's going to hold everybody on until the end of the race. And then you think about that meme that we have um, Alex's face with a very strong body. So that's, <laughs> that's what I think when I'm saying that, that that's what they trust. It's going to happen that they, he is going to salvage the result for the team. And once again, he did it. He does. He lives up to the meme. Good for him. <laughs> Go get him. Go get him, Alex. Uh, the drivers he held up principally were, well, for the first half of the race, McLaren. Second half of the race, one McLaren. It was a very early stop as well, lap 15. I think he joked after the race that Lando Norris must have been very frustrated. There was just no way, despite <laughs> the early stop, you could get past. 
It was Lando Norris in the end, though, because Norris undercut teammate Oscar Piastri uh, at the only pit stop window. Oscar had been leading. He'd qualified ahead, got the better start. In fact, briefly overtook Russell on the first lap, but couldn't hold it because of that straight line speed and that very chiseled jaw from the meme. (laughs) The team said that Lando Norris undercut Oscar because uh, Fernando Alonso behind him, or two places behind him as he was, was an undercut threat in turn, having stopped a lap earlier. He was probably really only at the edge of undercut thread. It was about three and a half seconds, I think, and when Norris covered him, the gap was even larger. It's the second time in a couple of races that, that Piastri's been undercut by his teammate. He sounded a little bit less happy about it this time around. How do you read these responsive strategies from McLaren? Because it seemed in uh, Hungary, as it was the, the last time as well, that they just seemed very jumpy about covering undercut threats that maybe weren't necessarily there. Is it still... A very defensive mindset at McLaren, do you think? Yeah, I was really surprised by that on the cut. And the first thing I checked was how far away is, is Fernando because I had seen it. He had just stopped and I just couldn't understand. It was too far to cover uh, for Norris to lose the position if even he, if he stopped uh, two laps later. So I felt it was a bit, uh, it was a strange thing to do. And I, I felt that Oscar was... It, he was quite. I thought. I thought he was going to be more angry, or at least he wasn't as angry with the with the media. So I hope that maybe he questioned the team a little bit harder because <laughs> I, I felt it was a very very strange way to to go on about racing. But and McLaren had these big hopes about the the package for Monza. Finally, we're gonna have a, a proper win for low downforce, and I don't think it worked as much as they expected. They were on the slower end of the straight line speed, and that's something they still have to to work on. But yeah, also in terms of pace, the pace wasn't bad, and the mm. pace was of course better than albums. But we we need if you need more than that for Moser, you need pace and straight line speed as well. It's worth saying as well, just briefly, that uh, the slipstream was less powerful, or seems to be less powerful under these regulations. It was notable in qualifying; we didn't get any of the. You know, iconic Monza-style qualifying <laughs> stupidity, really, like we got a couple of years ago, because the slipstream just wasn't as valuable. You know, some of the drivers are talking about a tenth or two, and that's kind of not worth the risk. So that, I don't know, it's, I, I wonder how much of this race, which was fairly entertaining, uh, just happened to be that we've fallen in the sweet spot of the DRS a certain length and you know, the slipstream's a certain amount, and if next year we'll get a completely different race again. Just something, I guess, to think about for next year. But finally... Uh, let's talk about one driver who did two stops, Liam Lawson. It's his second or first and a half Grand Prix, I guess, if you don't count the Netherlands <laughs> as a full one, because he rocked up on a Saturday. Finished only six seconds out of the points behind Valtteri Bottas, but he made two stops, which was reckoned to be something like, obviously it depends a little bit, somewhere in the 15 seconds range, I think you mentioned earlier, slower. Uh, he was running 11th before his second stop. The team says they'd actually planned to make two stops from the beginning, which is sort of a bit unusual considering this is ordinarily pretty nailed on one stop. Do you think it's a bit of a missed opportunity for Alpha Tauri? And I guess a little bit more broadly, this is, again, yeah, only his second race, Liam Lawson. He's knocking on the points, was pretty close to Yuki Tsunoda this weekend. How impressed have you been by the way he's been taking to this unexpected debut? I'm very, very. Since uh, the Netherlands, he is so calm. So people try to ask him questions just to bring out some emotion <laughs> out of him. And he's just like, really... Like playing, just like yes, I'm doing my job and all that, and it's very impressive because he's so young, and he's been put under fire really with with this situation. 
just to clarify, I mentioned 25 seconds, but 25 seconds is a bit loss, mm -hmm. which is different from the different strategies because the different, different strategies you men mentioned 15 seconds, which is true. It's 15 seconds when you count the, the time that you're going to make up with the, the fresher tires. So both numbers are right. Mm -hmm. They're just saying slightly different things. My theory from, I don't know exactly what was the thinking behind AlphaTauri, but my thinking, given what they did with Liam also in Zandvoort, was to give him a, a straightforward race uh, with, with the tires because dealing with thermal degradation it's something that the other drivers are so used to, and it's one of the hardest things to do in a Formula One car. So maybe they given, they've given him a, a more straightforward race so he could just develop and do his own race and not be being too much fussed about the tire degradation kind of thing. And why do I mention Zenvold? Because both times, as soon as it started to rain, AlphaTauri didn't think, oh, okay, it's going to stop in two laps, it's going to stop in five laps. No, they stopped him. It was the first thing they did. They, they put him on the, the wet tires or the intermediate tires. So he would have, uh, let's say, fewer reasons to make a mistake, let's put it that way. So they are making it easy for him, which is their role in this um, situation. And he is really corresponding really well. He is doing so well. He didn't put a foot wrong and his face was good. And his strategy was slower, and even so, he got not that far away from the points. It's going to be interesting. It seems increasingly like he's going to get probably another two races in that car. Singapore will be a tricky one, but he's raced at Suzuka now, courtesy of Super Formula. That could be kind of the culmination of this one-off, or not one-off, but cameo appearance for Alpha Tauri, and could be his statement drive. It certainly spiced up the driver market for him and that whole question mark about who's going to be racing at Alpha Tauri next year we'll wait and see by the end of the season 10 in a row for Max Verstappen how many more will he win how many races are there 8 more uh, I guess that's probably going to be the answer Julianne thanks so much for joining me on the podcast thank you it was a pleasure but stop that I, stop the count let's stop the count <laughs> <laughs> Toto Wolf mightn't like it, but 10 races in a row is a phenomenal feat of performance in Formula 1. To operate at Verstappen's level for this long without even a minor mistake is hugely impressive and very much worthy of what will soon be a third world title. Next on the list, that legendary perfect season. Thanks very much to Julianne Serasoli for joining me to debrief the Italian Grand Prix. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato. I'll be back in a couple of weeks for the Singapore Grand Prix. should be simple just put on your shoes and go and yet when you try to learn about how to get better at it especially as you age you're confronted with conflicting advice complicated workouts and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you on the planted runner i'll share exactly how to run faster longer and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste 
I'm coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 258 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along The Planted Runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.